for a wonderful time of worship. We just sang our sermon, by the way, on Glorious Day. How awesome is that? You're going to find we, we're going to preach what we just sang just a moment ago. Wonderful time of worship. Well, as you settle in this morning, let's start with the little game I like to call Who Said It? It's a very simple game. I'm going to share with you a famous line from a famous person. I want you to tell me who said it, okay? The first is from Christian history. Who said this? You probably know where I'm going with this already, those of y'all that know me. Who said this? Who said, I cannot and will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God, amen. Who said that? Martin Luther, that's exactly right. You probably knew I was going to go there, right? He spoke that at the, uh, at the Diet of Worms when he was asked to recant of his teachings from God's word. Here's another one from American history. Who said this? Who said, give me liberty or give me death? Patrick Henry. Very good. Here's another one well-known from a well-known speech in American history. Who said this? Four score and seven years ago. Do I need to go on? Abraham Lincoln, right. It's a famous Gettysburg Address. Who said this? The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. FDR, very good. We're getting to uh, one you just mentioned there. Yeah, FDR said that. Who said this? I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. That was Churchill, very good, yeah. And uh, one last one, y'all should know this one, pretty uh, familiar, it's more recent here. Who said this? Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Ronald Reagan, right. These are, these are famous lines from famous leaders in history, and one of the main reasons these individuals are known for saying these things in particular is because each of these quotes is connected to a famous event in history. Well, this morning, we're going to look at a very well-known message from a very well-known man that was connected to a very well-known event in history. We are going to look at one of the earliest church sermons this morning that we have recorded for us in the Scriptures. And the reason this sermon is significant is not only because it is one of the first we have recorded, but also because of what this event is connected with. As many of you know, who have been with us for the past few weeks... You know that just before Peter preached this sermon that we're going to look at this morning, the church was formed. We learn in Acts 2 that after Christ's disciples wait in Jerusalem for a few days after Jesus ascends, the Holy Spirit comes upon them and he indwells them and unites them together in Christ and he seals them together in him. He brings this church together, the local, physical, and universal, and spiritual body of Christ is formed right here in Jerusalem. And we're told that because it was Pentecost, 
there were Jewish people in Jerusalem from all around neighboring nations and they hear this commotion taking place at this house that housed all of these Christ followers and they gather together and they witness these Christians proclaiming the mighty works of God in these different languages and we're told that each of them heard in their own language and there were 15 or more people groups represented and probably that many or more languages that were being heard and after that we're told that the group was amazed and there were some who wanted to hear more and others who were skeptical of this work taking place and they said ah these guys are just drunk and This response is what prompts Peter to preach this sermon found here in the middle of Acts chapter 2. That's where we're going to be this morning. Now we're going to focus in primarily in verses 22 through 41 this morning. But notice first that Peter addresses the skeptics and those who are wanting to hear more in verses 14 through 21. Notice how he addresses them. This is interesting. Talked about this in our small group this week. First, he appeals to logic, and then Peter appeals to Scripture. And by the way, if Peter can do this, we should do this. Am I right? He appeals to logic, and then he appeals to Scripture. At times, when you're dealing with skeptics, you can and should use logic. The Christian faith is an intelligible faith. It's a reasonable faith. It's a defendable faith. So you can and should use logic, but don't just stay there, right? Get to Scripture because we know that faith comes through hearing the Word. And the Holy Spirit uses, primarily uses, the Word of God to change the hearts and the minds and the lives of the hearer. So notice how Peter begins. He begins by addressing the skeptics who say, all these guys are just drunk. Look at verse 14. But Peter standing with the 11, which by the way, notice Luke acknowledges there are 12 legitimate disciples here in Acts chapter 2, Matthias included. That's just a side note, but make note of that. Says, and Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. Or I like the way the NIV says it, it's only nine in the morning. Peter says here, it's too early for drunkenness, so he appeals to logic, and then he appeals to Scripture, because he's dealing with Jews from all over the place. So he uses their Scripture, and he turns to their prophet, the prophet Joel, and he says this, look at verse 16 through 21. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, 
blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, notice here, Peter, he uses some apocalyptic figurative language here, right? In talking about that great day, the coming day of the Lord. But he primarily quotes this prophet here to explain what's going on in Acts. He's explaining this mighty work of the Holy Spirit that they're asking about. And he tells those in the crowd, these guys are not drunk. What you're witnessing is a great work of God, a work that was promised from the prophets of old. He said God spoke through Joel and prophesied that there was going to come a day when the Spirit of God was going to come and be poured out in a unique and powerful and special way. He wasn't just going to come and work in and through particular leaders like he did primarily in the Old Testament when he worked through prophets and priests and kings. But he's going to be poured out on all flesh, all of those in Christ, young and old, sons and daughters, men and women, male and female servants. And Peter is saying here, that day has come. This is what you're witnessing. The Spirit has come, and we have been empowered on high by him and after giving this answer to those wanting to hear more and those skeptical of the work that was taking place when the spirit came upon them at Pentecost after that Peter then delivers a sermon to them and I want you to notice I made mention of this last week but I want you to notice that Peter's message is primarily centered on the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ And again, we should learn from his example, right? His message, his message, God's message about his son's person and work should be the song that we sing. It should be the message that we proclaim. And Peter does that here as well. Though he explains to them the work of the Holy Spirit in verses 17 through 21, the bulk of his message is focused on Jesus. And we're going to look primarily at this message this morning, and we're going to discover as we look at this message, and as we study through this entire book, get this, that this is the message that grew the church on that day from 120 to 3,000. And this is the message that Jesus' followers take out of Jerusalem and out to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And this is the message, folks, that we are called to preach today and that people are still responding to this very day. And notice there are four things about Jesus that Peter focuses on in his sermon. He focuses on his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension and exaltation. First, notice he focuses on the life of Christ. That's point number one. The life of Christ. Look at Acts 2.22. Peter begins this sermon by saying, Men of Israel, hear these words. I like the way Peter starts that, don't you? It's with some authority. He's got some authority behind it. Remember we talked about last week that Peter's audience were the Jews in the surrounding nations and those in Jerusalem, and Peter addresses them here. He says, Jewish people, 
Men of Israel, hear these words. And then he says, Jesus of Nazareth. Now let's stop there for a minute. Let me ask you this. Why does Peter begin by referring to Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth? If you're making the case that Jesus is God's man, he is God's promised Messiah, that he is the Lord, the one worthy of worship, why start by referring to him as Jesus of Nazareth? Did you know that some of the Jews, the non-believing Jews, referred to Jesus in that way? Because they viewed Nazareth as hick town in that day. Jesus of Nazareth, your your so-called Messiah. They used it in that way. But Peter uses it here. Why? Why does he do it? Why doesn't he say, the Lord Jesus, God the Son, God with us. Why call him Jesus of Nazareth? Here's why. Because Peter is beginning his sermon by focusing on the fact that Jesus was a man. He was a man. Saying Jesus was a man who grew up in Nazareth. Many of you knew him or you knew people who knew him. He was raised in a common home. He walked the streets with the common man. He was the son of a carpenter. He had an upbringing not much different than you. And then he makes a separation between Jesus and the crowd by saying, but this man was a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Now the word attested here means to be made known or to be shown to be. Peter says, Jesus of Nazareth was shown to you to be the promised Messiah, the Christ, by God through what? How was he shown to be the Messiah? Through mighty works and wonders and signs. So Peter says here, though Jesus was a man, he wasn't just any man, right? He was God's man. And he proved that by the miracles that he performed. Notice here, this is just a side note, but notice here we're reminded of why Jesus did the miracles he did. Why did he perform these miracles? Were they just meant to amuse people? To say, wow, look what Jesus can do. Is that why he did them? No, we're told he did these things to reveal to people who he was. God, through these miracles was showing who Jesus of Nazareth was. He was showing through these miracles what Jesus came to do. He was showing through these miracles that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the Christ. So Peter begins his message by quickly summarizing the life of Christ. He says Jesus was a man from Nazareth who was shown to be God's Messiah through the life he lived and through the mighty works and wonders and signs he performs. Peter begins by focusing on the life of Christ. You know, at times when we share the gospel, we have a tendency to skip right over the life of Christ and focus on his death and resurrection. Now, it's vital that we focus on Christ's death and resurrection, but it's also essential that we focus on the life Christ lived for us. If Christ's life was not important, then he would not have had to have come as a child. He would have just came down as a grown man and gone straight to the cross. But he didn't do that. The reason why is because he had to live for us, folks. 
He had to live the life we could not live to fulfill all righteousness, as it says in Matthew 3, 15. You've heard it said before that we're not saved by works. Well, that's not altogether true. We're not saved by our works, but get this. We are saved by Christ's works that he accomplished on our behalf. He lived the perfect life for us, and he laid his life down for us. On our behalf. And he was raised for us so that we, through his life and death and resurrection, could be saved. So when thinking about the gospel message, folks, it's very, very important that we focus on Jesus of Nazareth. Very important that we focus on Jesus' life and his work that he accomplished here on earth for us and the great wonders and signs that he performed to show who he was and what he came to do and also to remember the great work he did for us on our behalf so that we, through Christ, could be counted righteous before God. Life of Christ, very important. Peter focuses on it. Number two, the death of Christ. It's his second point. Look at verse 23 of Acts 2. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter here is making the argument that Jesus is the Messiah. He's God's man. And get this, something that Peter anticipates is this objection by the Jews that says, well, if he is God's man, why did he die the way that he did? Tell me that, Peter. Peter's anticipating this objection. He says, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Peter's making the point here, God is very much in control, and he was very much in control at Jesus' crucifixion. He says, this is all a part of the divine plan. Many of the Jews had missed this in the scriptures. So what Peter and the others spent a lot of time doing early on in ministry as they reveal these truths to the Jews. They show them that the Old Testament scriptures told of a Messiah who was going to come and suffer and be offered up and over by God to be crucified. This is all a part of his divine plan. We see this in Psalm 22. We see this in Isaiah 53 and elsewhere. Look at Isaiah 53, 5 through 6 up on the screen. Look at this with me written three or four hundred years before Jesus' death. Isaiah said, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, on Christ, the iniquity of us all. You see, it was all a part of the divine plan. The Old Testament taught us that the Messiah was going to suffer and die. But the Jews had missed this. So when Jesus died, they say, see, this man can't be the Messiah. He died. But Peter and others, they use passages like this in Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 to say, see, Jesus has to be the Messiah. Look at the way in which he died. That's the point. This is all a part of the plan. 
Now, folks, many take issue with God's involvement in Christ's death. They say it can't be. This is a wicked thing that was done. Surely God played no part in it. Well, notice that Peter acknowledges that the killing of Christ was pure evil. He says in verse 23, This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Who's the you here? That's the Jewish people, right? He's talking about the Jews here. He says, you crucified and killed Jesus by the hands of lawless men. Now, who are the hands of lawless men? Who's he talking about there? The Romans, right? The old creeds tell us that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was killed by the Romans, but was delivered over to them by his own people. So they're responsible as well. He says, you guys did the killing. You killed Christ. You just did it through the lawless Romans. So Peter acknowledges the fact that this was a wicked act that was done, but also that it happened in accordance with God's divine plan. We've said it time and time again in here, folks. Though God is not the author of evil, though he is not the cause of it, he allows it. And he certainly uses it for his purposes and for his glory. You can't get away from this in Scripture. You see it all throughout the Scripture. You see sinful people carrying out God's divine plans. And you see that here. Though Christ died at the hands of lawless men, both the Father and Son, get this, they knew it was going to happen. God willingly sent His Son. Christ willingly laid His life down to atone for our sins. And folks, get this, this teaching is at the heart of the gospel message. Christ was our substitute. God sent Him to the cross. And Christ went willingly and he laid down his life to atone for our sins. That message is at the heart of the gospel. You take that away, which surprisingly some so-called pastors have, you have struck the gospel at its heart, at its core. This teaching is at the heart of the Christian faith. John the Baptist understood this. This is why when he sees Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God. Now, what was a lamb? Lamb's used for sacrifice, right? He's looking at Jesus and he's saying, Behold the Lamb of who? Of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And how does he do it? By laying his life down. Jesus said this, John 10, 18, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from who? From my Father. See that? Father and Son involved here. And again, Peter says in Acts 2, 23, This Jesus was delivered up, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So the death of Christ is at the very heart of the Christian message. God sent his son to die. Jesus laid down his life, and by doing that, he paid the penalty for sin that you and I deserve. That's what we've been singing about this morning, isn't it? About that wonderful work that Christ did for us. There's a third thing that Peter mentions here about Jesus in his sermon. Not only does he talk about the life of Christ and the death of Christ, notice he also talks about the resurrection of 
Christ. Now this point is where Peter spends the majority of his sermon. This is the main point in Peter's sermon. He gives nine verses to the resurrection. Now why did he do that? Well, think about it. Think about the context. At this time, many people were aware of the life of Christ. And many of them may have even witnessed the great works that he did. They also knew of his death. But many in the crowd, outside of the faithful, 120 at this time, they questioned the resurrection. So Peter camps out on this point. Look at verse 24. He says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So notice here, not only did Jesus show himself to be the Messiah through his earthly ministry, through his mighty works and wonders and signs, and through his suffering and death, but also through his resurrection. In verse 24, we're told that God raised Jesus up from the dead. Peter says, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. As we sang about earlier, death could not hold him. The grave cannot keep him from rising again. Isn't that right? Why? Why was it not possible for death to hold Jesus? Well, one, because he's the eternal son of God. Two, because he became a sinless and guiltless man. The only perfect man to ever live. The only man to ever live not deserving of death. Yet though he did not deserve to die because he was without sin, faultless and perfect, he willingly laid his life down. And because he's fully God, he was able to take his life back up again. And he was also able to take care of sins past, present, and future eternally at the cross. And as the faultless man, he was also able to conquer death with his own death. Get this, he took the full sting of death for us so that he could completely remove the sting of death from us. What an amazing work Christ accomplished. Love so amazing, you should be shouting that from the rooftops because that's what our Lord has done for us. It's amazing. Notice also in this text that Peter points back to Psalm 16, 8 through 11. And the reason why he uses this passage is again to show that Jesus' resurrection, like his life, like his death, was all a part of the plan from the beginning. Peter is speaking to a Jewish audience here. Once again, he's using their scriptures to show that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Look at it with me. Peter says, verse 25, For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now, many of you are reading that, you're probably wondering, what on earth does this passage have to do with Jesus' resurrection? Can you all read that and think that? Just be honest. Yeah. What does this have to do with Jesus' resurrection? Why does Peter quote Psalm 16 in support of the resurrection? Well, the answer is found in verse 27. Look at it with me. Notice David says, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. In the NIV, it uses the word decay 
instead of corruption. I like that a bit better. I think that's a better translation of that word. It means to rot or to decay. In the Old Testament, David uses a Hebrew word, sahat, which refers to putrid organic matter. That's why I like the NIV translation a bit better. It says, you will not let your Holy One see decay. You will not let Him rot. And some of you are like, okay, I get that, Graham. What does that have to do with Jesus' resurrection? Well, Peter tells us. Look at verses 29 through 31. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. So David, according to Peter, was not talking about himself here. He was buried, he died, his body did see decay. Verse 30, being therefore a prophet, Peter says, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption or decay. So Peter is looking back, get this, he's looking back at David's words, and though at first glance it seems as if David is talking about himself here, he died, he was buried, his body saw decay. But get this, There was one of David's descendants who came after him who did not. We know Jesus was a descendant of David, don't we? And we know that he died, but though he died on the third day, what? He rose again. He rose again. He didn't stay dead for long. He rose again. So again, Peter appeals to Scripture to show Jesus is the Christ. And again, he also appeals to logic. At first, he appealed to logic and then to Scripture to explain this great work of the Holy Spirit. Here, to talk about Jesus' resurrection, he appeals to Scripture, then he comes back to logic. Look at verse 32. He says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And they were, the whole 120 of them. So he says, not only did David say this would happen, but we have witnessed it. We have seen the risen Christ, which is further proof, folks, that Jesus is God's man, God's Messiah. You have here the testimony of the scriptures, and you have the testimony of the eyewitnesses. And folks, these points here, this is key. Because get this, if the resurrection happened, that is a validation of all that Jesus claimed to do and be. Do you know that? I heard a pastor once say it like this. He said, if Jesus had not been raised, nothing really matters. But if he has, he's the only one who does. So true. He has been raised. That makes all the difference in the world to us as believers in our faith. So we learn here in Acts 2 that Christ has been raised. Therefore, he's God's man. He is God's Messiah. That's Peter's point. There's a fourth and final thing here that Peter mentions about Jesus in his sermon. Not only does he teach on the life of Christ and the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, but he ends with the exaltation of Christ. Before he closes this sermon out, Peter stresses the fact that Christ has been exalted. Look at verse 33. 
being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Now at the beginning of this book, we learn that after Jesus' death and resurrection, he appears to his disciples for many days. He teaches them, he prepares them, then he leaves them. He ascends into heaven and he returns to be with the Father. And the Bible tells us that he has taken his rightful place at the Father's right hand. In fact, Jesus said that about himself while he was on trial, which drove his accusers mad, made them want to kill him right there because he said he was going to be at the Father's right hand. And that's where he returned to after he ascended. This is what many call the exaltation of Christ. And we're told that when Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father, the Spirit was given to Christ, and He in turn poured out the Holy Spirit on all of His faithful followers. That's what Peter's saying here in verse 33. So notice Peter has come full circle, hasn't he? At first, they're asking about this great event of the Holy Spirit, this great work that they're witnessing. Peter explains that. Then he begins to preach a sermon that's centered upon the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. And on this last point, on the exaltation of Christ, Peter returns to this event that's taken place. And he says the fact that this event has taken place, get this, it reveals the fact that Jesus has been exalted. This event reveals that Jesus has taken his rightful place at the right hand of the Father and has in turn poured out his Holy Spirit. So Peter says here that this event at Pentecost, it proves that Jesus is God's man. He has been exalted. It proves he is God's Messiah. He is God's forever king. And notice, he also goes back to the Old Testament for those in the Jewish audience. He goes to Psalm 110 when talking about Christ's exaltation. He says, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Again, when... David said this, it appeared as if he was talking about himself in Psalm 110. But it's made clear several times by Jesus and by Peter here that David, once again, he's looking to someone else. Someone greater coming through his family line. During Jesus' earthly ministry, many were critical of him and the fact that he claimed to be greater than the patriarchs of old. There were some who were critical of Jesus because he claimed to be greater than Abraham, greater than David and others, which he did. In Matthew 22 and in Mark 12, Jesus cited Psalm 110 to make the point that though he became a man and he took on flesh and he was a physical descendant of David, he makes the point that he is, in fact, David's Lord. He precedes David in his divinity. He's eternal. He made it clear that David in Psalm 110 was speaking of him, and that's the way Peter understands it as well. He says this psalm, is pointing to the fact that Jesus is God's Messiah who has been exalted to the right hand of God. And this event here at Pentecost proves that this has happened. Jesus has, in fact, been exalted, and he has, in fact, poured out his Holy Spirit. So we have the exaltation of Christ. 
Notice how Peter closes his sermon in verse 36. He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, made Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And then notice the response. Now when they heard this, it says they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and he continued to exhort them. That means he pleaded with them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So when Peter finished his sermon, we're told they're cut to the core. They're cut to the very heart by the message. They're now convinced that Jesus is God's man. Many of them were convinced that he was who he claimed to be, he is who he claimed to be. And Peter, they ask Peter and the others there, they say, what are we to do? Peter says, repent. Turn from your sin. Make Christ your Lord. And then publicly identify yourself with him and with these new believers in this new Christian community by being baptized. And notice who this invitation is for. Look at verse 39 again. It's for you. It's for your children. It's for all who are far off. He says, this is for everyone the Lord our God calls to himself. Notice we see here that salvation is a work that God does, right? He's the one who calls. He's the one who draws. And it's also a work that is available for all who turn and repent and trust in Christ alone for salvation. And it's a work that requires a response from us. We must respond in faith. Well, did they respond? better believe it. Look at verse 41. This is awesome. Those who received Peter's word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The church grew from 120 to 3,000 in a morning. That's awesome, isn't it? Wouldn't you have liked to have been there? See that revival take place? What a response. And folks, like I said at the beginning, this message was not only the message that the early church was founded upon and a message that changed the hearts and lives of the hearers in that day, on that day, in that first century, but this is the message, get this, that our church was founded upon. Did you know that? This is the message that many of you have responded to in faith. And this is the message that our world needs the most today. Maybe you're here this morning and you're truly hearing this message for the first time right here today. Though you've heard about Jesus in the past, you're truly listening today and you're truly seeing. You have ears to hear, eyes to see this morning for the first time. You're seeing Christ as God's man, God's Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords, as the one who has lived for you and died for you, the one who was raised for you, the one who sits at God's right hand. And you're asking the same question that the Jews in Peter's day were asking, what am I to do? I believe this, what am I to do? Well, guess what? 
Just like the message that Peter preached has not changed in 2,000 years, neither has the response. If you're wondering what to do next, here's your answer. You're to repent. You're to turn from your sin. You're to turn your life up and over to the Lord Jesus. You're to trust in Him alone for your salvation. You're to give your life up and over to Him and receive His Holy Spirit, the seal of your salvation. If you've never made that decision, I pray you would. Please, I plead with you, I exhort you like Peter to do that before you leave here today. Let's pray.